welcome to Silence, a podcast that gives women a chance to get honest and open about what it's really like surviving and thriving in what often feels like a male-dominated world. All of my guests have been hand-picked from the fields of science, technology, engineering and mathematics, or STEM, where inclusivity and diversity can be a real issue. I know this only too well, having been a mechanical engineer myself for a number of years. I'm Dr. Shanice O'Mara, now a television broadcaster. I've worked on and reported on some cutting edge technology and innovation over the years. And through my TV work, I've met some incredibly inspiring women from a diverse range of STEM fields. These women are true trailblazers, and I've often felt so empowered myself by learning what they're like as real people, usually when the TV cameras have been turned off and they're just being themselves. Each week on Silence, one of these women shares her unique experiences and truth without the usual pressure and stress of having to promote her accomplishments or uphold her impressive reputation. How? Because all of my guests are deliberately kept anonymous and disguised to ensure that we as listeners are not distracted or maybe even intimidated by all the usual kinds of societal labels and trophies. The women of STEM on this show have amazingly impressive CVs, but most importantly, they're human, just like the rest of us, and I want to share the inspiration and wisdom that I've gathered from them with you. It's my hope that you really relate to what we chat about today, and if so, please do subscribe to Silence and maybe even rate and review the show. I'd love to have your feedback. This week, my guest is in the field of water and environmental management. Hi. Hi, Dr. Samara. Thank you so much for having me today. Ah, it's a real pleasure. Oh, I'm so happy that you came on. Um, You're doing so much in STEM and you're really young. How have you managed to fit everything in? Uh, Yeah, that's a really great question. It's something that a lot of people tend to ask me, especially um, students who are younger than me, uh, parents teachers. um, They all want to know how I am able to kind of uh, work on projects that are of my own creation and really set aside the time to do that. Something that I've realized is that um, one of the best motivators is a real intrinsic curiosity and a real desire to just understand how something works or understand why something happens. And the more curious you are about a particular topic, the more likely you are to carve out the time, carve out um, kind of the resources that you need to be able to um, dedicate not only, um, you know, dedicate not only uh, mental energy to working on it, but also to kind of spend uh, a really prolonged period of time. So, um, It's really been a journey that has involved so many people around me, uh, not just myself. It hasn't been independent. Um, You know, there have been adult advocates, uh, whether in my community, at my house, at my school, who have always really uh, pushed me forward and um, given me the resources that I've needed to, to kind of get started with a lot of different projects. With curiosity... I completely agree that it's essential for STEM, but, you know, your curiosity could have taken you into different directions. How did you know that you wanted to focus on STEM-style subjects? In my community and in my family, um, the sciences and uh, cutting-edge technological work has always been something that we've talked about, we have marveled at, we've been very enthusiastic about. So from a very young age, I've been kind of 
exposed to this realm of um, science isn't just important. It isn't just what shapes the world around us, all of those sorts of things. It's also just very cool. Uh, it's very exciting. It's very dynamic. There are constantly uh, new breakthroughs that are occurring and changes that are being made. And the most powerful thing about science is that literally anybody has the capacity to help make those changes. And I think that is what really attracted me to um, STEM as a whole, is that um, there are so many avenues, um, there are so many fields, really uh, narrow and really broad, and that if some things don't pan out, if some things don't work out, there are always new things to try and new avenues to approach. And I think that's something very wonderful and very unique about, about STEM. Gosh, that's such a refreshing perspective because I think some um, students, uh, young people get put off by STEM because they feel like they've got to be good at math <laughs> or, you know, really sort of like logical and methodical but you make it sound like you know anyone can do stem yeah it's actually so funny that you say that because math has never been my strong suit um i've oh. never i've never even you know um considered myself to be a really star student in math or um for That's so reassuring <laughs> yeah. uh, and a lot of my 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 peers, my fellow student researchers, um, a lot of them are really strong in math or they are really strong in technology and always have been. And so um, I think that you're absolutely right. I do want to show other students and other adults even that you, you don't need to necessarily gravitate toward math or gravitate toward engineering to, to love STEM. For me, I think that STEM is honestly a really wonderful expression of creativity because when you are designing experiments and when you are kind of trying to approach uh, really big problems or really small problems and come up with solutions you really need to be thinking outside of the box you need to be thinking um and pulling from your own personal experiences from things that you're reading from things that you're seeing um and ultimately i think some of those things are uh, just as important or even more important than having the fundamental analytical, technical, or math skills uh, that are also integral for solving all of these problems. Um, that's how I kind of oh think of it. Oh my gosh, that is so awesome. But tell me really, like on a realistic level, mm -hmm. when you get a bad grade in math, like does it not sort of knock your confidence a little bit? Yeah, it definitely does. It, it this, this is so funny to, to talk about. So, um, you know, I am, uh, I'm going to be going to college in a year and I haven't decided exactly where yet, but I was looking at um, some of the courses at some of the universities that I might be going to and their math requirements. And I realized that at some universities, I might be in the bottom 20% of math students. And I have never been in the bottom 20% of anything. Of anything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I was talking to my parents and some of my friends and saying, wow, this is so crazy. And I, you know, why, why can't I be better at this? And, um, you know, how did I get to this point to where I'm like, not successful at this? And they looked at me and they said, it's because you love other things and because you're talented at other things. And you might not gravitate toward math, 
and that's okay. Um, and it's honestly so wow. reassuring to, to, to hear that. And I, and I think about it, um, I might be in the bottom 20% of math at some schools, but I don't think I'll be in the bottom 20% in bio or in chemistry. Um, mm. And I think that people really need to start approaching um, what they want to study and what they want to do with, with a mindset, not just of um, really focusing on, on their weak areas, but really trying to develop and embrace their strengths and really trying to say, okay, I'm good at these particular things. I might not love these other things. So let me just dedicate my time, dedicate my energy to seeing what is my true potential in the things that I do love. Wow. Oh, you make it sound so easy. <laughs> well, I know. Where did you not, learn that? Where did I learn that? Um, to, to kind of go into a, a little bit of a different tangent, but it will all kind of come back together. Um, from a really young age, um, I've always kind of felt judged by a lot of my peers, particularly my male peers, for my personality. And at a very early age, maybe in the sixth or seventh grade. So when I was 11 or 12 years old, um, I went through a phase where I was really insecure about my personality, about being extroverted, about being talkative and being pretty opinionated. But at that very early age, I kind of um, had to develop a mindset uh, of kind of stepping into a role where I can express who I am and love who I am um, and not allow judgmental people to kind of deter that. And I think I've tried to apply that same mindset to my academic life, to the projects that I work on. What made you choose to think that way? Like, was it a certain experience? So I think that when you are a girl and when you are either a high achiever or you're involved in a lot of different things and you like to try new things, um, you get a lot of feedback that's both really positive and really negative. And um, for me, I think I was very fortunate that um, the positive influences in my life, uh, most especially my teachers and my parents, but also a, a few of my peers, I think I was really lucky that they cared enough to really emphasize that um, all of the negativity that I was receiving on the other end um, was really a product of, you know, a, a, a multitude of things, but, you know, jealousy as well as kind of uh, uncertainty at the fact that I, I really was the only girl trying to participate at such a high level mm. so, you know other people's fears in other words right um and just like unfamiliarity with the situation unfamiliarity with how to handle a team full of boys and then one girl how would that dynamic mm. work the other wow. boys, I can't really fault them now looking back I can't fault these 11 year old boys for not understanding how to handle that dynamic because they had never experienced it before and a lot of their parents had never really experienced that before either so they didn't know what to or how to really address that with their children um and so I think that um, having those advocates, having my parents and teachers kind of rationalize with me uh, and explain why some of those things were happening, why I was getting negative commentary. I think that um, 
being talked to like an adult and being talked to as somebody who could understand and then overcome was really helpful. Um, and I, I did, I was able to understand and then look past it. Um, I think that, that a big problem is that sometimes women, you know, encounter judgment or hatred or negativity and people either diminish it or kind of blow it up without actually addressing the root cause. Right. And I think that makes women feel very insecure um, or kind of just objectified. And um, I think when you really start to talk about why these things are happening, that perhaps it's not even this individual or this group of people to blame, that it's really just the system to blame then it's easier for everybody to understand and deal with. Wow. I can't believe it. I can't <laughs> believe your attitude. It's so powerful. Oh, I think we just, we can end there. <laughs> I mean, it's so, it, I, it's mind blowing. I mean, I the reason why my mind is blown is because you are you've literally saved yourself decades of struggle with the attitude that you've got because you know I've spoken to lots of women about these kinds of issues and a lot of women have had to spend time really getting to the point where you're at and not even really reaching Mm. the point you're at you know still struggling with it Mm -hmm. but it seems to me that one of the key things that has allowed you to arrive at this attitude is really genuine support and love from the people you hang around with. Absolutely. Um, One thing that I realized only a few months ago was that I did not understand the concept of sexism. I did not understand that there was a difference between the sexes until I went to school and until I grew up a little bit because I was so fortunate to be raised in a household where both of my parents um, are so kind of, both my parents treat um, their children completely independent of their gender. Uh, All the opportunities presented to my siblings and I, all the ways in which we have conversations in our household uh, have literally nothing to do with, with our sex, with our gender. Mm. Um, and what what siblings do you have? So I have a younger sister. Um, so it's so it's just my sister and I. And mm. uh, I realized when I came to school, uh, and really when when I got to the point in school where, um, you know, kids start to get involved in activities outside of the classroom and all that kind of stuff. Um, mm. To that point in school, I realized that my parents treated my sister and I like most other parents treat their sons. And uh-huh. that was very interesting to me. Mm. Um, and what, what, what does that look like? Well, I think from a very young age, my sister and I were encouraged to always speak our minds, contribute to conversations, um, really be confident um, and embrace uh, the, the, the skills that we have and the opportunities that we have. Um, we, we are a a very vocal pair, my sister and I, uh, and 
I think that that's culturally uh, not something that many girls at a young age are taught or encouraged to do. Mm. I don't want to generalize and say that, that that never happens because, of course, there are several families just like mine. Um, but I don't think that it's the majority of families. I don't think that that's, this is the predominant case. Because many of my friends who um, either have, you know, uh, many families who have one boy and one girl or multiple boys, multiple girls, etc. There is a distinction between how the parents treat the children. Mm. And it's very unfortunate that it starts from a very young age. Um, The boys are encouraged to kind of uh, speak out, try new things, go for sports, go for academic competitions, uh, go for all kinds of uh, community type activities. Whereas the girls are not really encouraged to go and try their hand at all of these new and cool types of things. Um, maybe the parents have an idea of what the girls are intended to do. Maybe the girls should be spending their time on this particular field or on this particular activity and if that doesn't work out then the girls aren't really encouraged to try different things and that means that the girls feel that they have failed or feel that they aren't good enough at a very young age whereas in reality they just uh, didn't gravitate to that one particular thing that their parents had intended for them to do um, right. And I've seen this at really young ages. I've seen this uh, throughout high school. And I see this with college aged kids as well. Because, you know, when you go to college, you are theoretically independent of your parents. But, uh, you know, the last 18 years of your life, all the experience that you've had with them, it still sticks with you. And so that mindset is kind of um, imparted onto you. And even if your parents aren't there telling you, which things to try, which things to not try, how to behave, how to speak. Um, There is a voice in the back of your head that's conveying all of those messages, uh, I guess, as a stand-in for them. And um, that's why I think it's so important that from a very early age, from a young age, before kids even start school, that the whole concept of gender roles, uh, barriers, for kind of how you should behave and how you should speak. Um, and also the um, the way that many people kind of um, justify or dismiss when young boys behave in ways that uh, are offensive to girls. I think all of that should really be done away with. <laughs> You're amazing. You're just absolutely amazing. Oh my gosh. Um, I mean, I'm just trying to imagine like what it must have been like being raised by your parents and then going to a co-ed school, I'm assuming. Like, was it a shock? Uh, Yeah, definitely. And I think that the the strangest part, looking back on uh, my earlier years now, is that a lot of times I didn't exactly realize what was happening until somebody explained to me what was happening. So, for example, I used to be on the academic team. Um, I quit about two years ago just due to time constraints. But starting in the sixth grade for about for, for several years after that, I was the captain of the team. 
and my team was me and three boys and we were the always the varsity team like this was the, the this was the the i guess the star group of four players and i always thought that they didn't listen to me as the captain because they thought i was a bad captain mm-hmm. and then i realized no they didn't listen to me as the captain because they did not want to recognize that the female player was actually objectively the best player. And They're intimidated. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. And of course, at the time, it really took a toll on me. And I would work so much harder to just do better, be better, be nicer to them, be uh, more kind of accommodating and flexible. If one of them wanted to play captain, I would let them. But then the coach would say, why aren't you playing captain? You're supposed to be the captain. And I would say, well, he wants to. And she would say, well, you can't let him because that's not his role. And uh, I think that it it took a a while for me to understand kind of what was actually going on. But once I did understand what was actually going on, it became much easier to um, feel more at peace with my own Mm. abilities and feel like this wasn't my fault. I haven't done anything wrong here. Um, And, you know, this is the way they want to approach this, but it doesn't actually reflect upon my skills or my knowledge or anything like that right it's it's a much more uh, nuanced situation I mean it sounds like every time you could have fallen someone was there to catch you yeah very serendipitous I was I've been so lucky for the last so many years and I think about that a lot and I wonder what is going to happen when I get myself into a situation and somebody isn't around to catch me I become I actually worry about that a lot. Um, and but the thing is, when when you were captain, I mean, how old were you then? So I was captain between the ages of 12 to 16. Okay, because between those ages, you were really learning how to assert yourself. And I just feel like the skills that you learned in those very formative years will stay with you throughout your life. Because even just the awareness of being worried about falling in the future means that you're kind of already protecting yourself against the fall, should it ever happen to you. Thank you. I hope so. I hope so. Um, But I do think that you're right in the sense that the earlier that young women can kind of come to terms with these situations and kind of understand why they happen uh, both in the academic world as well as in their personal lives. I think that the, that the younger they can kind of try and uh, figure these kinds of things out, the, the better, right? Because one, you can avoid, like you said, uh, years of, of inner struggle. And two, you know how to better address these situations in the future. Um, where did your parents get the idea to parent in such an encouraging way? So the more I have looked back at my family history, the more I've realized that this has been the parenting style on both sides of my family for several generations. 
Um, so I was lucky to be born into a family where uh, for, for a very long time, uh, before there was any concept of even um, women really working in the professional sphere, uh, women having independence, uh, that, that my family has always kind of tried to incorporate that. So for example, um, what my paternal grandmother, she was one of the first female lawyers in all of India. And that is a really uh, amazing thing. She went to London to get, um, to get her law degree and she, she left on a boat. She went for a few years, never looked back and only returned upon getting her degree. Uh, and then on my other side, uh, my maternal grandmother, she has a doctorate degree, which is also very, very rare, especially when you think, you know, uh, 50 years back, things were very different, especially in a developing country. Um, women's rights, uh, especially in the academic sense, were not very progressed. And uh, so their parents encouraged them to kind of seek out these opportunities, pursue them, um, not to be deterred. Uh, and so that mindset has been passed on generation to generation. So my parents, um, my mom herself is a very strong, confident, hardworking, um, and just extremely, um, I would say, kind of um, inspirational woman. Like she is a very uh, strong force in our community and she uh, does a really great job bringing lots of people together and speaking up for underserved people. And uh, she's, of course, been the strongest role model in my life from a very young age. Um, and even now, she, um, she really somehow, I'm not sure entirely how she, she works her magic, but somehow she is able to um, kind of run our family. She's able to run a company. She is able to uh, facilitate things in our community. And um, seeing her drive has, uh, of course, inspired my own. What culture have you grown up in? Because I want to switch cultures <laughs> to yours. So uh, both of my parents are from India. My mom is from Southern India. My dad is from uh, Northern India. But they both grew up, you know, in big cities. So they're both kind of... Uh, they both grew up, I would say, in a slightly more uh, grungy environments um, because when they were growing up, India was rapidly developing and um, urbanizing, and so it was a very interesting. It was a very interesting time for them. Um, but um, so they're from very different cultural backgrounds, which has been nice. I actually find that quite surprising because uh, Asian cultures, I assumed, had women in very subordinate roles. That's that's right. And that is traditional. That is typical. Um, and it's been very interesting to kind of compare the way my family operates with the ways that other Indian families in India, as well as Indian American families operate, because they are quite 
different. And um, it, something that I notice very frequently is that um, my mom is one of the only women um, at Indian community events or Indian dinner parties who is invited to and allowed to really socialize with the men, um, have deep and uh, more substantial conversations with the men. And um, that is so strange to me. Um, but it, I mean, I can see why that is. My mom fulfills a traditionally male role, but she is uh, she is the CEO of a company. So both of my parents are entrepreneurs and um, they have both um, dedicated, I would say, equal amounts of time to their own professional lives as well as to our family's well-being, which is a really lovely thing to see. It's something that I hope to bring to my own family uh, one day. But um, she's one of very few women who do that in our community. And um, therefore, there is a little bit of uh, uh, a, a difference between how she is viewed by the men versus how a lot of the other moms are viewed by the men. Uh, what you're talking about is so fascinating because I really do think that women's assertiveness is directly correlated to how they're raised and how we're raised is directly correlated to generations of uh, attitudes really and it sounds like the reason why you have such strength of character and so much self-esteem and confidence is because of generations of that being modeled to you through your family yes I would definitely agree I would definitely agree and I think that um it's very unfortunate that lots of young girls don't have similar situations, don't necessarily have similar role models in the home, because I do think um, a lot of character building starts with the family. But I think that's why it's so increasingly important for uh, teachers to start stepping into that role, uh, other community leaders, other advisors. Um, because it doesn't necessarily need to be from your mother or your father that you learn all of your values, right? That is a great starting point. That's a great stepping point. Um, but if that's not an option that's available to you, that's not something that's in your control, right? Um, you can't change who your parents are. You can't change where you live, what kind of a household you're in. And that's why I think that um, the other people who we see on a day-to-day -day basis in our schools and the other aspects of our lives in the clubs and activities that we get involved with, I think that they play a very instrumental and integral role mm. in shaping our values, shaping our sense of self. So, I mean, when you are seeking out um, good people to be around, um, what are you looking for? I mean, are you even conscious that you're looking for the right people to hang around or do you just, does it just naturally happen? Yeah, that's a really good question. So are you, are you asking more about like my peer group and my friends or more about like mentors? I'm just trying to establish whether you're just really lucky being around some amazing 
people who are extremely supportive and encouraging or whether you actually consciously uh, make an effort to make sure you're surrounded by um, motivating and inspiring individuals. Oh, yes. Okay. So um, for many years, this was one of my biggest challenges. And honestly, it, it is still one of my biggest challenges today. Um, I feel like if we just talk about numbers, numbers of people, the number of people who um, dislike me, dislike my success and would prefer to bring me down uh, far exceeds the number of people who do want to help me, encourage me and support me. So that makes me very thankful for those who do. One thing that I have found to be really, um, really helpful, at least in a school environment, is actually to become friends with people who have very dissimilar interests from me, who are involved in things completely unlike me, um, maybe who um, aren't even particularly interested in academics or aren't interested in, in um, kind of doing the same kinds of extracurricular projects that I am. Because that means that the basis for our friendship isn't something that could easily be turned into a competition. The mm. basis for our friendship is instead um, more personalistic things um like we enjoy um going to nice restaurants together or maybe we enjoy going out to the park in the summer times together and we do things that don't really allow for a basis of comparison which leads to then jealousy which leads to competitiveness and animosity so that's what i tried to do um and a lot of my friends um some of them are not very academically oriented, but a lot of them are. A lot of them are high achievers, just not in the things that I am uh, interested in. And that See, honestly adds a lot of diversity to our friendships. Yeah, and that totally makes sense. But when I look back on my friendships when I was um, at school, I became friends with people I was in competition with because I wanted to be positively influenced and I wanted to like push myself harder by kind of it wasn't um a vicious competition it was more just like a healthy spurring each other on yeah and so I I think there are different kinds of competitiveness and some competition can be really healthy and encouraging and at the end of the day is not rooted in any kind of malicious feeling and it's just rooted in wanting to, be, to to do the best that you can. My school is not that kind of competitive. It is the kind of very toxic, very self-serving, um, very negative competitive. And I think it's really important to differentiate between the two. Because the first kind is, I think, the kind of competition that you find. Um, I found that kind of competition. Uh, the very healthy version at a lot of the science fairs that I went to. But I have not found that kind of encouraging competition at my school or in my community. And I really do want to get to the root of how um, that same kind of competitive attitude can become 
twisted in different ways. Um, and I have I don't have an answer for that at all. Um, but I do think identifying that is important because in some senses, you want to lean in. You want to kind of immerse yourself in that. And in some places, you want to get out and you want to kind of find other avenues and find other people. I'm curious to know about your sense of self, because you must have a really strong sense of who you are to not get influenced by friends of yours that have entirely different interests. Um, Because let's just say someone was really good at dance or really good at art. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't you kind of look at them and think, oh, I want to be like that. And get kind mm-hmm. of like slightly swayed by that and maybe a little bit even distracted. So um, sometimes I definitely find myself comparing the things that I do to the um, the other really cool things that some of my friends do. And I question whether my skills and my talents are as valuable as theirs. And that can be a very tricky game because... Um, it really can be a hindrance and it can hurt your sense of self when you start to compare um, two completely disparate fields, right? Um, if my friend is an artist or if my friend does something with music, um, there is really no sense in comparing anything that I do to what they do because there is so much opportunity in this world um, that ultimately everybody's skills can find a place to call home everybody can find a place in the world where they can really contribute constructively to society and be a really positive force and i try to focus on that i try to focus on the fact that my friend and i uh although we might do completely different things although the the things that she does might be amazing that her talents are going to be put to use in a different place than mine will. And ultimately, even if what she does is on a bigger scale or maybe reaches more people, we're both going to be contributing positively in some kind of way. Do you reckon that comes from growing up with a sister? Yeah, I I think that growing up with a sister has shaped that quite a bit because she and I are extremely different. She is very, um, um, she's very creative. She's very artistic. And she and I, uh, we're both confident, but I would say in very different ways. Um, For example, I am... I always have been a really big perfectionist and I really uh, take pride in the results when I work really hard watching things pay off. Um, and then I, I take pride in the way uh, things end up. But my sister, on the other hand, takes pride in the journey. My sister takes pride in um, the process of getting from point A to point B. And if point B doesn't turn out so perfectly, she she laughs it off and she says that's completely fine and I'm going to do something different tomorrow. Um, and I've learned a lot from her. I've learned so even though she's younger, I never want her to hear me say this, but I've learned <laughs> a lot from her way of thinking about things um, because she genuinely believes that if she put in the work, if she tried her best, then 
that is all she could have done. And uh, that's really the best reward she could have asked for. So, yeah, I think that seeing that has really shaped uh, the way I interact with my friends, the way I see uh, other really smart and strong people. And it's led me to be able to appreciate their smarts and their talents as opposed to be afraid of them. Mm. You mentioned earlier that science can actually be really creative. How does something as creative as science, which I totally agree with, it is very creative, but how does something as creative as science um, marry with perfectionism? Yeah, that's, that is a very good question. So when you look at, you know, research that comes out of universities and out of big labs, uh, of course, it's had to be repeated so many times by so many people down to the tiniest detail. Um, Everything has to be just right, especially when you're thinking about products that are going maybe into the field of medicine, interacting with real people. Of course, they need to be proven to be safe. At that level, perfectionism is very important. But I think that the entryway to science and, you know, the the level that we should all be experiencing for the first few years of being in scientific fields um, doesn't require perfectionism at all. And this was a very tough thing for me to learn and to realize because the project that I've worked on for the past couple of years uh, has been anything but perfect. Uh, It is a project that I worked on in a maker space So I used, you know, kind of ragtag materials and supplies. And uh, if things didn't work, I would find random supplies in my house or at that makerspace to kind of fix them up. And I kept getting hung up on the fact that this is not how a manufacturer would do it. This is not how a real scientist would do it. This is not how somebody in a lab would do it. Um, But ultimately over the course of about two years uh, working on that project, it took me a very long time to kind of realize that the science that I was doing was no less valuable than the science that is going on at esteemed universities. Because what really matters about science is taking an idea and trying to make it concrete, trying to make it tangible, trying to kind of, visualize something conceptualize it and then apply it the perfectionism is maybe the last five percent maybe the last ten percent but everything leading up to that um all of the skills that you need to lead up to that are skills that i believe everybody has i believe everybody has um creative instincts and people who think they aren't creative I think that they just haven't learned how to tap into their creativity yet. And they haven't learned what the right field to apply their creativity to is yet. For Mm. me, like painting was not the right field to apply my creativity because I have no talent in that field. 
but I do have talent in problem solving. And that's when I realized that STEM and science was going to be the right place for me to apply my creativity. Um, mm. And so letting When go, did you realize that? When in your life did you realize that? When did I realize that? I think uh, the transition between middle school and high school. So going into high school was when I started to really develop an interest in science outside of, you know, the conversations that my parents and I would have at the dinner table, um, outside of the fact that people in my community, people in my family have always gone into science. You know, I always knew that. Um, and I always thought it was fine, but I never really found that intrinsic interest until I was going into high school. Um, because that was a point in my life when I was transitioning and I wanted to approach this new school, this new system with my best foot forward. So I took the time to think about my actual skills and my actual interests. And what I came up with was that I liked looking at big problems, breaking them down, thinking about how they affect the world, and then trying to come up with creative solutions to them. Very general, right? This is a very like vague and general. Yeah, so although that's a very um, generalistic idea of what I like to do, I thought that science would be a really cool way to exercise that. Mm. So how has the perfectionism in you helped you and how has it hindered you? I think that perfectionism has helped with my sense of perseverance and diligence. I think that being a perfectionist has meant that I don't tend to um, be okay with a halfway finished product that I um, really want to see things through uh, to the highest level that I can take them. So I think that's very helpful, but it has hurt me because um, I actually struggle with a lot of anxiety and I think perfectionism has played into that in some ways. Mm. Um, I don't tend to get very anxious about my work but I do tend to get anxious about how people view me and uh, whether I am being the best person I can be not the best scientist and not the best student but I do get hung up sometimes on whether I'm being the best person I can be so sometimes when I do something or say something to someone, or have a petty conflict with with a friend or with a classmate um, that I know is not nice or not right, it really sticks with me. And it can really like cast a cloud on my day or on my week. Um, so I have trouble letting things go sometimes. And I'm trying to work on that because um, you have to be able to release yourself of things in order to move forward and try new things. So that's something I'm working on. And so how have you evolved um, in dealing with um, that anxiety that comes with perfectionism? So I would say I've been dealing with anxiety for the last two to two and a half years. And for 
the longest time, I had no idea how to address it, let alone conquer it, because I didn't know how to place a name to the feelings that I was experiencing. So I think one of the most important things to realize was that all the symptoms I was experiencing were really uh, a product of anxiety. Um, So after I was able to identify that, I think that I've tried to deal with it um, using a few different techniques, but the best one I think that I've used is writing and journaling. I try to write every day because when you write out your experiences, your thoughts, your feelings, when you put them all on paper, they actually become a lot more realistic and you can see how you might have blown things out of proportion in your head, how uh, the issues you're thinking about are actually not as huge as you might have thought. They're not as unapproachable as you might have thought. Um, And they're actually things that you can deal with. So I think that journaling and really chronicling uh, what I'm doing and how I'm feeling about those things has really helped me tackle that issue. And so given that you've got tools to kind of grow and mature, really, really strong tools, I must say, um, have you then sort of formulated a plan of how you want your life to turn out? Or are you too young for that? Well, it's, of course, something that we all think about. Mm. I, um, I've seen a lot of different definitions of success. Um, and I think I have unfortunately seen a lot of examples of traditionally successful adults, you know, people who have built companies or, um, you know, contributed a lot to their fields and made a lot of personal wealth, but who are very, very unhappy. Mm. And I think that one thing I know for sure is that I, I, I absolutely want to avoid that. I really want to um, make sure I never get caught up in or influenced by um, kind of materialistic factors because from what I've seen, I don't think it brings families joy. I don't think it brings communities joy. It just brings recognition, which in and of itself is not very meaningful. Mm. Um, so I think that my uh, my biggest goal is to do work that continues to inspire my curiosity. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that when I am intellectually stimulated, when I am curious, those are the happiest times in my life when I'm surrounded by people who I think are very interesting and engaging and unique. Those are the times when I am happiest. So that's what I hope to do is surround myself with people who um, kind of, ask a lot of questions, make me more curious, and then motivate me to solve problems. Right. And in terms of being a woman in a very male-dominated world, Mm -hmm. um, 
Have you given any thought to sort of how you're going to fit in all aspects of being a woman, like, you know, possibly a family one day and relationships and things like that? Like, how does that all tie in? Yeah, so um, I am so thankful that my mother is who she is. You know, we we've had our clashes and, and all of the normal uh, mother-daughter relationship aspects. But uh, like I mentioned earlier, my mom has somehow been able to uh, be uh, a very strong and involved and uh, supportive mother uh, to both my sister and I as well as run her company. And I don't know how she finds the hours in the day to do that, but she has. And so I am really comforted in knowing that she's done that. When the time comes for me, she'll help me do that. Um, But something, a a little tidbit that I think is really funny uh, about my mom's life story is that, um, so my parents are from different cultures in India. My mom is from a Hindu family and my dad is from a Sikh family. And, uh, you know, traditionally you marry within your religion, right? Um, at the, the very least you marry within your religion. But my parents met at grad school in the United States and they wanted to get married. And my mom's parents did not want her to marry a non-Hindu, but this was my mom's big rebellious moment. And she married my dad anyways. Um, She put her personal happiness and uh, kind of her life partner, somebody who would be with her for the next several decades. She put that above this very conventional, outdated, uh, traditional system. And of course, now my grandparents love my dad. They, you know, they thank my mom all the time for ending up with him. Um, but at the time, I think uh, that was a very bold move of her. And uh, she has broken a lot of barriers. And that inspires me a lot. So I definitely uh, plan on being someone like her who can uh, handle both a successful and harmonious and united family um, as well as be um, kind of really high achieving in my professional life too. Wow, she sounds like an amazing role model. She is. She <laughs> definitely is. <laughs> um, you said that you, at some point, I think off air, you told me that um, you do a lot of work in encouraging, uh, is it women in STEM or just young people generally? So. Um, I have been doing a lot of work with minority girls in STEM. So uh, the the school district that I'm in is a minority majority district. So we have more students of color than white students. And that means that the schools I've gone to have always been very diverse, uh, not just in terms of race, but also in terms of socioeconomic class, also in terms of education level of the parents. and that has been a very interesting experience. Um, so one thing that I'm really big on is people finding their individual strengths and then applying those strengths. Um, but I found that a lot of times that very first piece was missing uh, with minority females because in the households that they're raised in, 
they have very clear expectations set for them. But unfortunately, with expectations come boundaries. And the stricter the expectations are for you, the stricter the restrictions and the stricter the limitations on where you can go and how far you can go. And I saw this a lot uh, with um, some of my peers, some of my classmates, the girls in my school. So I became very interested in how uh, my path had differed so greatly from theirs. And how the only real cause of that that I could figure out was that my parents were very supportive, encouraging, open, whereas their parents and maybe their teachers had not been. So I wanted to really change that. So for the last three years, I've been working on my nonprofit organization. And what I've done the last couple of summers is run training programs where minority girls, generally from um, more disadvantaged households, not all of them, but most of them from disadvantaged households and disadvantaged schools. Um, I, I've done a seven week program uh, for a few summers to teach them web development skills, some app development, um, different kinds of modeling softwares. But then more importantly than all those technical skills, I've tried to, uh, I've tried to introduce these girls to minority female role models and leaders in our community. Mm. Uh, we have a lot of them where I live. And not just women in STEM, but women in business, women in the arts, uh, women in government. Um, and a lot of these women came from very similar households and pathways. And they pulled themselves up, of course, with the help of um, supporting peers and supporting mentors. Um, so I've tried to foster this relationship. Um, and uh, it's been a very rewarding experience uh, for me and for, you know, for, for everybody involved, I would hope. But really for me, because it's really validated my belief that with a little bit of support and encouragement, any young girl can learn a lot and do a lot. Because the girls don't just learn these skills, they are then, um, so so basically, I, I, I set the girls up with small businesses in my city, and they work with these small businesses to develop websites for them, to develop allocations for them. And they can do it, they can do the real work. Just because they haven't given the opportunity, they haven't been given the opportunity before doesn't mean that they can't do it now. Mm. Um, so I've really loved working on this organization. It's, it's taught me a lot about um, how to bring a community together, how to lead in a community um, and kind of how to, you know, how to, how to uplift the people around you uh, mm. when they really need it and just give them a push. Because I think, I think once, once you get a push, uh, the rest is very much self-propelled. Yeah. I mean, that's been a strong theme um, throughout our conversation today is you're such an advocate for um, receiving encouragement and support from uh, kind of mentor type figures. But yeah. in your work with uh, these minority women in STEM, are there common themes, no matter what STEM subject they're taking, that that kind of highlight themselves when working with these groups? Like, are there common sort of like issues or um, sort of dysfunctional beliefs about themselves as a minority that holds them back? 
I mean, basically, another way of asking the question is, do you have suggestions for women, minority women, um, to succeeding in their chosen career choices? Yep. Yep. So one thing that I've noticed is very common um, is, and I don't, I don't, you know, this is just from a small sample size of the girls that I've worked with, but it's that a lot of, in a lot of disadvantaged homes, the parents have so much to deal with with their own problems, um, with, you know, kind of managing the family, um, you know, if they have problems with their work, that ultimately they don't have any time or energy left to give to actually spending time with and encouraging the young girls and really helping the young girls independently and personally develop. It's almost like a lot of the parents, you know, and it's it's not necessarily by any fault of their own. This is just how the system is, unfortunately. They are just spread so thin um, that they don't really get to know the interests and the skills and the talents and the hidden gems of their own daughters. Mm. And uh, most likely their sons. Although I haven't worked with young boys, I could pro- probably, uh, you know, hypothesize that the same is true mm. with, with young boys. Um, and when I look at my family, my mom spent so much time, and my dad as well, um, trying to get me to try new things, then figure out how I felt about them, how good was I at them, how much uh, would I want to dedicate to these things, and really helping me choose and explore pathways. I think that the biggest problem in a lot of those types of communities and households um, is that they are not really given opportunities to explore pathways. Instead, it's like a a one-size-fits-all. You know, the girls are instructed in a community to all do one thing and if they do well at it then great and if they don't do well at it then fine and that just means that they are not going to be successful or that just means that they should you know not uh, be ambitious not strive to greater heights Uh, for me and in my family it just means fine let's try something new Mm -hmm. but in a lot of these families it means fine you should just give up, take the back seat. Yeah. Um, and I think that's really, uh, that is really the biggest problem. Um, you know, my biggest advice to young girls, although I think that it, they really need to hear it from their parents or if not their parents from their teachers is that when one thing doesn't work out, that is not a predictor for how the next thing is going to work out or the next or the next. A lot of the things that we try are very independent from one another. And there are a whole set of circumstances that can influence whether an opportunity goes right or whether it goes wrong. And I think that one setback or even one failure should not be taken as a predictor for the next opportunity. I think that this is a problem or uh, really a faulty mindset, not just amongst minority young girls, but girls everywhere, um, that 
if they mess up at one thing, it speaks to their lack of capabilities in all things. And that's not true at all. You don't generally see boys thinking about things that way. Generally, when something doesn't work out too well for a boy, they easily brush it off and just go into the next thing because that is a sort of culture that they are raised in. They are raised uh, in a way to kind of explore a bunch of new things and always be searching and always be striving. Um, and girls just aren't. Uh, girls are shown that you should maybe try your hand at something, but if it doesn't work out, then it didn't work out. And that's that. I really want to deter that. Wow. Well, what an amazing note to end on. So inspiring and so wise for your years. I mean, I, I, I feel utterly uplifted um, talking <laughs> to you. And uh, you've made so many things that were very uh, fuzzy for me, extremely clear. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. This was a really great conversation. That's it from my STEM guest this week. What an incredible human being. Uh, I literally feel uplifted and motivated to take a good hard look at my attitude and ask myself what it is that I really want to do with my life and what I want to try next. I mean, the positivity that came out of my guest today was just unbelievable. Um, Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to rate and review the show and catch you next week on Silence.